Hello, I'm Robert Congdon, Director of CMI-TV and Congdon Ministries International. Just recently, as I've been studying trends in Reformed and New Calvinist theology, I've noticed a growing attention to the Great White Throne Judgment of Revelation 20. I was surprised to see that their teaching about this judgment is vital to their teaching of TULIP. Now TULIP stands for the five basic doctrines of Calvinism. It also explains why they do not believe in the rapture, the seven-year tribulation, and the millennium, as biblicists do. Further, I realize that their understanding of this great judgment day, as they call it, differs significantly from a biblicist or dispensational understanding. We believe the Bible teaches that the great white throne judgment is only for unbelievers. The great white throne judgment is only for unbelievers. For believers were judged at the cross and will face no further judgment. Oh yes, we will meet Christ at the Bema, so often mistranslated as the judgment seat of Christ. But it's really a time of evaluation, not judgment. On the other hand, Calvinistic teaching sees a general resurrection of all peoples. That's believers and unbelievers alike, a single resurrection at the end of history. So they can all be brought before Christ at the great white throne judgment recorded in Revelation 20. That's right, they joined the Bema and the great white throne judgment into a single event for all people. As a result of their teaching, many believers unnecessarily worry about the great white throne judgment. Key to the Calvinistic understanding of the great judgment is their teaching of a general single resurrection that includes all peoples of history, both righteous and unrighteous people. Thus, I feel it is necessary first to examine the biblical teaching about resurrection as a foundation to prepare us to study the Great White Throne Judgment. In this video, part one, we'll look at the resurrection parade of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in part two, we'll then be prepared to study the Great White throne judgment from a biblical standpoint and compare it with the Calvinistic teaching and we'll see the great difference between those two. Now let us begin our study of the resurrection parade of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll begin our study of biblical resurrection by turning to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, and starting in verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards they that are Christ's at his coming. Here Paul is proclaiming some very important truths contained in four key words. 
The four key words are first fruits, slept, the resurrection of the dead, and every man in his own order. Let us look at this first key word, first fruits. First fruits. Every farmer knew what this means. Biblically, it refers to the biblical command for all to bring the first fruit of their harvest to the Lord and offer it to Him. In Leviticus 23, God instituted the Feast of First Fruits. Here, the Hebrews would worship the Lord for the harvest that would follow. In doing this, they recognized four truths. The first truth, it was the Lord that provided the crops for them to harvest. The second truth, therefore, the best of the harvest belonged to the Lord who provided. Number three, the first of the harvest would be an indicator of the quality of the harvest to follow. If the first was good, so too would be the rest of the crops. And finally, number four, the first fruit of the harvest is always the best quality of the entire harvest. Thus, at the Feast of First Fruits, farmers would bring a sheaf, that's a, an armful, if you will, of their new crop, or a portion of whatever that new crop was, and offer it to God on the very first day of the harvest. For always remember, the first belongs to God, and what, what follows was really for the benefit, then, of the farmer. Now, if a farmer withheld the first fruit from God and kept it for himself, this was not only disobeying the law of first fruits, but it would also reject God's ownership and God's provision for all that he had. This was really exemplified in Genesis chapter 4, where we have Cain who brought merely a token of his harvest to God, rather than the best or the first fruit. By contrast, we read that Abel brought of the firstlings. Now, literally, firstlings means first fruit. But Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock, we're told in verse 4. It was the first of one's harvest, whether animal or crop, that was to be returned to God. And in doing this, God would be pleased, worshipped, and honored. Thus, Abel's offering of the first fruit was, according to Hebrews 11, verse 4, a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. In this act of worship and gratitude, God gives us a picture of Jesus Christ, who would be the first fruit of the resurrection of the righteous. Thus, Jesus Christ is not only the best of the resurrection ones, but he was the first of more to follow. How do we know there are more to follow? Well, if you have a first, then there must be more coming after. You see, when God raised the Lord from the dead, we know that more people are to follow. That is more of the same quality, or speaking theologically, more righteous will be raised from the dead. Now, this still does not answer whether there will be a general resurrection of all beings, believers and unbelievers, but it does teach us that more people will be resurrected than just the Lord. Our second key word is Paul's use of the word slept. This word slept 
When speaking of death in the Bible is a very important term that relates to resurrection. A survey of the New Testament's use of slept with reference to someone dying reveals that it is only applied to those who die in Christ. For them, the term indicates that their body is sleeping in the grave, awaiting Christ's shout to awaken it at resurrection. We should note that the biblical term slept never refers to soul sleep. Nowhere in the Bible is this taught. Rather, it is merely God's term indicating the body is waiting for the resurrection. It's as if it's asleep. Again, the term is never used of the unsaved, unrighteous people. For them, the Bible uses the simple word, dead. And for them, there is no promise of eternal life with Jesus Christ. They are told they will live forever in hell, but there is no promise of the life eternal with Jesus Christ. Thus, in this passage, Paul is reminding us that all those who have died as Christians, they will be part of a coming resurrection. Our third key word or phrase is the resurrection of the dead. Now, the biblical definition of death is the disunion or the separation of the person's physical, material body from his non-material part, his spirit or soul. It is crucial to realize that for a human being to be a total person, they consist of both a material part, the flesh, bones, body, etc., and a non-material part, the spirit, soul. For our study here now, we're not going to make an issue whether humans consist of two parts, body and spirit, or three parts, body, spirit, and soul. We're going to leave that to theologians that like to talk about philosophy. We're going to just keep it simple, the material and non-material part of a person. Now, biblically, death is the separation of the person's two parts, his body and his spirit. Therefore, when a Christian believer dies, two things happen. His body is separated from his spirit, and the body is placed in the ground. But his spirit immediately goes to be with the Lord in heaven, for we are told in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, We are confident, I say, willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. It's very important to understand that in eternity we will be a very real, total person. Thus we must have both a non-material spirit part of ourselves, but we also have to have a literal, physical, material body. That's why there's a need for resurrection. Thus the definition of biblical resurrection is the reuniting of a person's body, their material part, with their spiritual, non-material part, but now in an eternal condition. This means that our eternal body must be glorified so it can exist eternally and won't wear out, like ours do today. You see, our present bodies are not equipped for eternity because of sin that entered into the world. 
but in our glorified state, our body will be equipped for eternity. Thus, resurrection restores the unity of a person as God intended from creation, and resurrection equips that person for eternity. Thus, for the dead in Christ, they'll be reunited or resurrected in a similar fashion as the Lord's resurrection. As we will shortly see, that we who are alive when Christ comes back will be resurrected or transfigured, if you will, and given an eternal body in a twinkling of an eye, in an instant. Recalling that Christ was the first permanent resurrection, we need to understand where Lazarus and others who were raised from the dead fit in. Now, they were merely restored to life with their present body. They would have to suffer death a second time and be buried, waiting also for Christ resurrection and the shout to them. And we'll see that further as we look more closely into the resurrection parade. At this point, we need to spend a few moments on death in the Old Testament. I'm often asked about those who died before the Lord was resurrected, and where are they? Sheol is the Old Testament word for this location where they are. It is where Old Testament people's non-material part went upon death. In the Hebrew, it indicates a deep place or a hollow place located deep under the surface of the earth. It is the place for the dead people's spirit, while their material bodies were buried in the ground. Christ further explained about Sheol, noting that the Old Testament righteous or saved went into a place called paradise. Remember, the Lord used this term when he was speaking to the repentant thief on the cross. There he promised the thief that he would be that day in paradise with Jesus Christ. And this is recorded in Luke twenty-three forty-three. At death, you see, the saved went to a part of Sheol, paradise. Now the unsaved went into a separate part of Sheol and there for torment. Between these two parts of Sheol, there was a great gulf. According now to the Lord's teaching in Luke 16 and verse 26. Recall there in Luke 16, he told the true story about the rich man and Lazarus, one in paradise, one in the other part of Sheol under torment. And the Lord stressed that there is a great gulf that can't be crossed between the two. Thus, the Old Testament righteous were in paradise awaiting resurrection to be with their Lord. But the unrighteous, they're also waiting for a separate resurrection of eternal separation from God. Now, following the Lord's death, the righteous soul's non-material part was taken, or their spirit, was taken to heaven, since the Lord had now paid for their sins while their material body continued to remain in the grave awaiting future glorification. Thus, both righteous and unrighteous were awaiting a resurrection. Calvinism teaches that both will join all other people of history in a single great resurrection and be brought before Christ at the great white throne judgment. But based upon our understanding of death and resurrection, we now need to see if a general resurrection of both believers and unbelievers is biblical or is not biblical. 
we need to see are they two separate resurrections for two separate groups. We'll do this as we look at our fourth key phrase from 1 Corinthians 15. That fourth key phrase is, every man in his own order. What does the Lord mean by this phrase? Well, we can see it in the Greek word for order. That Greek word is tagma. It means that which has been arranged or things placed in order. Or it could mean a body of soldiers, a corps of troops, or a band, troop, or a class. Now, we have to be really careful here. It's only used in this one verse and nowhere else in the Bible, suggesting this is a unique term to be used and linked to resurrection. Now, as I studied this word and I started looking at its uses outside of the Bible, I started to think of parades. You see, whenever I see this word in this order, I, I recall that part of the teaching was used in the military of parades and the order of troops. Now, in a town that we lived in in Illinois many years ago, we would have a parade each year. It always followed the same pattern. First would come the honor guard, then a fire brigade, then the officials of the town, and some floats, some marching bands, more floats, old-fashioned autos, and then one last fire engine came, and that fire engine told you when you saw that, that's going to be the end of the parade. Every year, the order was carefully arranged and always the same. Now, this word tagma means and pictures this very same thing. Oh, not a parade in a town in Illinois. Rather, it's telling us that there is going to be resurrection of God's saved people, and they will come in different groups, if you will, or in waves, as in a parade, or as in a military marching parade where you have the different uh, platoons and uh, battalions coming through. Just like my small town parade in which the honor guard came first, the Lord Jesus Christ was the first in the resurrection parade of many that would follow after him. Now, for us, his resurrection occurred almost 2,000 years ago. Therefore, we can conclude, first of all, that we're getting closer and closer to the next step of the parade, if you will. Perhaps soon, the parade will continue and the next group will pass by. be in this resurrection parade. As we consider history and God's plan, we see that there are two groups of people from God's viewpoint that are eligible for the parade. Until God called Abraham, there was only one group of people on the earth. All were descendants of Adam. At the call of Abraham, God promised that Abraham's descendants through Isaac and Jacob would form a great nation that would be called Israel. From that point on, people were either Hebrews, which we now call Jewish, and those who were not Jewish were called Gentiles. Never forget that all peoples need to accept God's salvation. No one is saved by their ancestry, by their works, or being in the right group or nation. 
Now, continuing from Abraham's call to the coming of the Lord to the earth, God used Israel to represent him, to proclaim him, and to offer salvation to all the peoples of the earth. With the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection, God's instrument that he was using changed from Israel to a new group of people called the church. The church now was to represent him on the earth, proclaim him, and offer salvation to all peoples of the earth. The church consists of Jewish and Gentile people who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. The church began in Acts chapter 2 and will continue until it's catching up to be with the Lord. These believers during this period of time would be in Christ and have the Holy Spirit permanently dwelling within them. Further, they are designated as the Bride of Christ, who will rule and reign with him in the millennium and on into eternity. Never forget that church-age saints consist of both Jewish and Gentile people. God has never abandoned the Jewish people. But Israel, as a nation, was set aside as God called out the bride. Now, after the catching up of the bride, God will again turn the focus of history upon his Israel. So, considering these groups, we realize that the resurrection parade must now consider the righteous of all history. It is these who will form the rest of the parade. These who will form the rest of the parade. They fall into five groups, this order of resurrection. These five groups begin with the New Testament church saints that are dead at the catching up of the church in the air to be with the Lord. The next group will come the New Testament saints that are alive at the catching up. The third group will consist of two martyrs. Following them will be the tribulation saints, and finally, the final group bringing up the resurrection parade will be the Old Testament saints. So now, let's look at the scriptures and take a closer look at this order of the resurrection parade. Please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll begin with verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. Notice Paul uses the term asleep. He wants us to understand that these are those who are in Christ, but have died, and their body is in the grave, but their spirit is with the Lord. He says, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Notice carefully here, Paul uses the word dead here because he, he wants to eliminate any kind of confusion. These aren't just people who happen to be asleep in bed when the shout comes. No, these are those who are dead in Christ, their body in the grave, their spirit with the Lord. He then says, 
Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Notice very carefully here. The dead in Christ, that is New Testament believers who are dead, they'll come first in the parade. They're the next group to come. They are immediately followed by we which are alive. Paul is indicating the order here by saying that we which are alive will not prevent or precede. In other words, we won't go ahead of them. They're first in the parade. We will follow them. And he also further says, as clear as can be, they shall rise first. Now, you can't avoid the order of people coming just as they would in a parade. This passage is clearly speaking of the catching up of the church to meet the Lord in the air. They don't meet him on the earth, but in the air. Further tells us we will always be with him from that point on in history. Unlike Reformed theology, where they join the catching up of the church with the second coming of Christ to the earth, this passage clearly teaches that we meet him in the air, not on the earth. So you can't pull the two into a single event. Biblicists believe that following this catching up comes the seven-year tribulation recorded in the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, and several other prophetical books in the Bible. Thus, the Bible clearly indicates there is a separation between the catching up in the air and the second coming to the earth. Now, this passage tells us of the resurrection of church-age believers who have died. When they died, their body went in the grave, yes, their spirit went to be with the Lord, for absent from the body is present with the Lord. This meeting in the air has their bodies resurrected and then glorified for eternity. Immediately now, after that event, those church-age believers who are alive at that point will be gathered up into the air to meet the Lord and be transformed into a glorified body. Paul tells us that these have been caught up. The word is harpazo. It means to seize, to be carried off by force, to seize or claim for oneself, to snatch away or snatch out. Now, just an aside, we get our word rapture from the Latin for caught up. Some people say to us, the word rapture is never in the Bible. Well, it is. It's not in our English translations. Instead, they say catch up. But the Latin word for caught up is raptural, from which we get our English word rapture. Thus, the word rapture is in the Bible. <laughs> it's in the Latin translations. Perhaps for the sake of these people who want to argue about the word rapture, we'd be better to use the term caught up to be with the Lord. Now, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52, that this event will occur in the twinkling of an eye. Thus, we have two groups taken from the earth, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior and have died, and those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior and are alive at the catching up. Again, I point out, this event will precede the seven-year tribulation. 
As the tribulation now begins with the church removed from the earth, we see the next group to be resurrected. This is a very limited group, very exclusive group of just two people. In Revelation chapter 11, beginning in verse 3, we read about these two men. John tells us, And I will give power unto my two witnesses. They shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth, and devoureth their enemies. And if any man hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues, as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascended out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, shall overcome them, and kill them. And after three days and a half, the Spirit of life from God entered into them, They stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven, saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld him. Notice carefully, these two witnesses are taken up to heaven, just as the church was taken up to heaven. But unlike the church which occurred in the twinkling of an eye, The enemies of God witness this event. Even though this is a great victory during the tribulation, many others will be martyred for the Lord during this time. What about them? Well, John goes on in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. He says, I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Here are the believers who die for the Lord during the tribulation. We know the time of this resurrection, for it tells us two things. These are people who did not worship the beast, his image, and didn't receive his mark. This only occurs during the seven-year tribulation. Further, we are told they are to reign with Christ for a thousand years. Now, this is where we get our term, the millennium. Thus, we know that the millennium follows the tribulation. So these people are those who are martyred during the seven-year tribulation. And they're resurrected at the end of the tribulation, but before the millennium. Of those we listed earlier, only one group has not been located in our parade. That group is the Old Testament saints. As we begin our study concerning those who died during the Old Testament days, we need to define who's in this resurrection group. As I mentioned earlier, After Abraham's call, God divided the world's people into two prime groups of people, those of the Hebrew Jewish descent from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and those not descended from them, called the Gentiles. In our discussion of the resurrection group, we are only talking about those Hebrew, Jewish, and Gentiles that are righteous. Thus, the Old Testament saints are all righteous people that lived from Adam to the start of the church age. 
My support for this conclusion is found in the Old Testament scriptures. Sadly, some people think that the doctrine of resurrection first appears in the New Testament. Actually, the Old Testament does give us sufficient understanding of the resurrection. Historically, the resurrection concept existed throughout history. All through history, man have believed that there is a life after death. Uh, the divisions or the discussions, if you will, were more about what would that life be and would you have a body or not. In the culture of Christ's time on earth, there was a division over that very issue. The Greeks and Romans viewed life after death as only affecting the spirit of a man. For them, only man's spirit was immortal and not the body. Jewish society was divided over the issue. Some, such as the Pharisees, believed in a bodily resurrection based on the examples of Enoch and Elisha. Now you'll find those accounts in Genesis chapter 5 verse 24 and 2 Kings chapter 4 verses 32 to 37. Another group, the Sadducees, however, believed there's no resurrection, period. We see this in Matthew 22 in verses 25 to 28, where the Sadducees challenged the Lord's idea of a resurrection. They cited the case of a woman who had seven successive marriages. How could God handle such a complex resurrection with this one woman and all these husbands. Now, we read in Matthew 22, The same day came to him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection, and they asked him, saying, Master, Moses said, If a man die having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now, there were with us seven brethren, and the first, when he had married a wife, deceased, and having no issue, left his wife unto his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third unto the seventh. And last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Christ responded by noting three errors in their thinking. First of all, he said, they did not know the power of God, in verse 29. For, for nothing is too complex for the God of creation. Second, he said, in verse 30, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Notice, he states clearly that there is a resurrection, but there is no marriage in eternity for either the angels or humans. And third, here was their real problem, because in verse 29 he says, They do err, not knowing the scriptures. The scriptures referred to, of course, the Old Testament, and by implication, its teaching on resurrection. So we don't fall into that same error. Let us look at that Old Testament teaching. Now, while there isn't a great deal of teaching on resurrection in the Old Testament, what there is form the foundation of the New Testament teaching on resurrection. That foundation begins in the earliest Old Testament book written of Job. 
Let's turn to Job chapter 14. In this chapter, Job is responding to his so-called friends and reflects upon the brevity of life and death. Notice in verse 10, he speaks of the separation of his ghost or spirit from the body that is wasting away. Look at verse 10 again. But man dieth and wasteth away. Yea, man giveth up the ghost, and where is he? Now in verses 11 through 14, he repeats the often expressed idea of death and the grave, where he uses the word Sheol that we've already talked about, the place of the dead. Notice verse 11. As the waters fail from the sea, and the flood decayeth and drieth up, so man lieth down and riseth not, till the heavens be no more. They shall not awake, nor shall be raised out of their sleep. Oh, that thou wouldest hide me in the grave, or Sheol, that thou wouldest keep me secret until thy wrath be past, that thou wouldest appoint me a set time. And remember me. That's Job's plea. Now, if Job had stopped with this statement, we might have thought that death was the end. Instead, in verse 14, he adds a question, the question of mankind. If a man die, shall he live again? Job significantly then begins his answer to this question. He says, All the days of my appointed time will I wait, till my change come. There are two key ideas in his statement. First, he uses the word sheol. Sheol in the Hebrew means a protected place for the dead spirits of people. Second, he speaks of a change that is coming to him. For the word change in this verse, till my change come, in the Hebrew has the idea of a replacement garment, a change of garment. Hence, an eternal set of clothes for the dead person. Now, if we move over to chapter 19 of Job, and we look at verses 25 to 27, we learn even more about this idea of rising up or resurrection from Job. Job says in chapter 19, verse 25, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand. Now, that word stand is literally to rise up or stand up. That's the definition of resurrection in the Hebrew. It means to stand up or rise up. He shall stand or be resurrected at the latter day upon the earth. And though my, after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in notice my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold. As we look at these verses, we need to keep in mind that the topic is rising up or resurrection, and that the time is the last days of history. Significantly, his Redeemer will be upon the earth. Now, in fairness, there are two possible interpretations of this passage. One is that when Job dies, he'll see God. That is, he'll continue his existence with God. The second is, not only will he continue to exist after death in a spirit, but that he literally will see with resurrected bodily eyes. Notice he repeats the idea three times of seeing in his flesh. He himself seeing. The emphasis couldn't be clearer 
that he's foreseeing a resurrected body with real eyes that allow him to see his God. Now, if we take either of these interpretations, both substantiate this early belief in life after death and the idea that death is not the end, but merely the separation of the body from the spirit. David reiterated this idea when he expressed his confidence in life after death in Psalm 16 and verse 10 when he said, Thou will not leave my soul, that's the Hebrew word for spirit, in hell or in Sheol. Recognizing this clear teaching that the spirit was in Sheol, we next need to determine when will their physical resurrection occur. We turn over to the book of Daniel in chapter 12 to understand that. In the first two verses of this chapter, in chapter 12, Daniel offers hope to Israel after all the persecution they had experienced from the world's leaders. And he says, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And many of them that slept in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. In this vision, Daniel reveals that Michael, now Michael is the archangel who always defends the nation of Israel. Daniel reveals that Michael shall stand for or protect Israel. And then he uses the expression, Michael does, thy people. Well, thy people are Daniel's people, therefore it's the Jewish people or the Hebrews of Daniel's day. Michael reveals that this will occur during the worst time in Israel's history, and for that matter, in world history. In a previous vision in chapter 9, Gabriel, that's the only other angel named in the Bible, Gabriel informs Daniel of God's plan for Israel over a period of 70 weeks. They're actually 70 prophetic weeks. These weeks, 70 times 7, turns out to be 490 years. In chapter 9, these weeks are divided into two periods of time. First, 69 weeks, ending with the cutting off or the death of the Messiah. That's verse 26. And the remaining week, which is a prophetic week or seven years long, is the tribulation. And that's where we call it often the seven-year tribulation. That time is a time that involves Israel again, not the church. Now, owing to time, we're going to leave the proof of this understanding of the 70 prophetic weeks for, for another video that we'll do at a later date. Recognizing the context from Daniel 9 through 12, we know that this terrible time for Israel will be the tribulation. Biblically, it is also called Jacob's Trouble. During this time, God is calling back Daniel's people, Israel, to himself. Recognizing parallel teaching in Ezekiel, in Matthew, and Revelation, we see that the deliverance of verse 1 will be the coming of the Messiah to deliver Israel 
and to begin his thousand-year reign upon the earth. In other words, this thousand years will occur right after the seven-year tribulation. He then explains that those asleep, in verse 2, a term we now know used of the bodies of those dead in the dust of the earth, will be awakened. The very same picture we saw back in 1 Corinthians 15 of resurrection. Since we have already seen that there is life after death for a person's spirit, this then is a clear reference to a person's body and thus the awakening, the rising up of that body in resurrection. Isaiah the prophet also speaks of this back in Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 19 when he says, Thy dead men shall live, together with my dead body shall they arise, that's resurrection, awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust, for the, thy dew is as the dew of the herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers, or literally into thy dark places, and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation, that's literally the curse, be overpassed or be completed. The context of Isaiah chapters 24 through 26 is the tribulation. It's also called the indignation of Israel, which would be followed by the coming of the Messiah and his kingdom. For we read in Isaiah 24 verse 23, The Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients, that's elders, gloriously. I have explained this time of indignation and God's cleansing of Israel in greater depth in my video, Ezekiel 38 and 39, The Battle of Gog Magog. You can see this at my website on cmi-tv.org. Now this cleansing spoken of in Ezekiel is the result of the tribulation and the coming of the Messiah. In clearest terms, Isaiah is speaking of bodily resurrection. The earth shall cast out the dead. That's the bodies. The body is awakened and released from the grave. Now, as we consider these key Old Testament passages of Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, we find several common links. They always speak of the literal nation of Israel. They offer God's people eternal comfort and hope. That hope is a spirit existence after death with the Lord and an ultimate resurrection of the body to become the complete person equipped for eternity with the Lord. The timing is always in these passages right after the seven-year tribulation and before the coming kingdom of the Messiah, the thousand-year reign, thus the second coming of the Lord to the earth. I would note that we have used passages in Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah to demonstrate the physical resurrection that is coming for the Old Testament saints. Why did the Sadducees not believe in the resurrection? Because they only looked at the books of Moses. That's all they accepted. So they ignored the prophets. The prophets fully defined resurrection. With this final resurrection group, 
the parade of those righteous who are resurrected to life concludes. John then calls the resurrection parade of the righteous the first resurrection in Revelation 20 and verse 5 where he says, But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. The phrase first resurrection refers back to verse 4 and the martyrs of the tribulation. Now, the unrighteous grammatically are a separate resurrection in this verse. The Apostle John makes this distinction back in his Gospel, chapter 3 and verse 36, when he says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. The difference the one having everlasting life is the one that believeth on the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That belief was his exercising his faith in Jesus Christ. How does he get that faith? Paul tells us that faith cometh from hearing and hearing from the word of God. God doesn't predetermine into which group a person goes. For God calls out to all people to offer his gift of salvation. In this same chapter, chapter 3, in verse 16, God says, He so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Sadly, throughout history, many have not believed in God the Son and have rejected God's gift, choosing instead to do it their way. For the Bible tells us, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You'll find that in Proverbs 14, verse 12. No, they don't cease to exist upon death at all. For them, their resurrection is described in Revelation 20. It is called the second death. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such, the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now moving to verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Then John says, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The second death is the separation of a complete man, his body and spirit, from God. It is a spiritual separation to be experienced only by those rejecting Jesus Christ and his salvation. The Bible tells us that every person who has or lives upon this earth is born a sinner, for all have sinned and come short or fall short of the glory, the standard of God, Romans 3.23. Further, as humans, we all sin, and sin is an offense against God that must be paid for 
by us with eternal separation from God. For the wages of sin is death. We can never pay all these wages through our good works. No, baptism, church membership, right ancestry, good works, no. For the Bible tells us, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. That's Romans 3, verse 12. There is no hope for any of us, for we cannot do it on our own. Thus, God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to pay for our sins, our wages of death. Jesus Christ died on a cross and took our punishment to pay for our wages of sin. Only through the shedding of his blood can our sins be washed from our account with God. Hebrews 9.22 says, And almost all things are by the law purged or cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of the blood is there no remission. There's no forgiveness without the shedding of the blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, if Christ had merely died and was still in the grave, we would not know if our sins were truly paid for. But thank God Jesus Christ was resurrected to prove that the price was paid. And because he lives again, so will we, if we accept him as our Savior. The Bible says, For God and his grace did this for us as a gift. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. How do we accept this gift? Like any gift, you merely take it and do not try to pay for it. You recognize you are a sinner. You have a massive debt to God that can never be paid by yourself. You recognize that Jesus Christ, as the infinite God-man, paid that price for you on the cross. But you must accept his payment by trusting in him alone for your salvation. That is, you believe in your heart that he is really God, and did this on the cross, and he rose again as your Savior. Once you have accepted him as your Savior, you know you'll be in the resurrection parade. For John writes, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know, literally means to know with certainty, that you may know that ye have eternal life. That's in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. If you know that you have Jesus Christ as your Savior, then the next time you observe Easter or Resurrection Sunday, just remember, Jesus Christ is coming back for you, he promised. Jesus Christ is coming back for you to take you home to be with him. Jesus Christ is coming back for you so you can always be with him for eternity in a glorified, resurrected body. Finally, remember Paul's final thought on the resurrection passage of 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. May our Lord bless you mightily. We'll either see you again here or in the air. This has been a production of Condon Ministries International. Please join us here again at CMI-TV for our next program. If you have found this podcast helpful and informative, we urge you to sign up for our free email newsletter at our website, 
www.congdenministries.org. We would also ask you to consider adding your financial support to our ministry to enable us to produce more podcast and video productions. You may donate your tax-deductible gift at our website, again, congdenministries.org. We so thank you for joining us today. May the Lord bless you mightily.